Welcome, everybody, to Happy to Fail Season 2, Episode 8. This is the podcast where we talk about the ongoing conversations about mental health within our community. In previous episodes, we've talked about how damaging it can be when somebody invalidates, when somebody minimizes our emotions. More often than not, we know how we feel. We know what we want, but we are so afraid to let that out in the open because we don't know how other people are going to react. And in this podcast episode, we're going to have a deep, long conversation about psychiatric hospitalization as a child, as a youth, as an adolescent. This is a conversation that sometimes can be very uncomfortable because I think that if you're a caregiver and you're thinking about this, maybe you have somebody within your family going through a situation and somebody saying, hey, maybe this is a viable option for the wellness of that human being. We're going to be talking about that with multiple perspectives with yours truly, Juan Velas Court. I'm a person with lived experience hailing from San Juan, Puerto Rico. And joining me once again, I'm loving the conversations we're having because we can look at uh, multiple sides of the same conversation, same topic I have with me from Connecticut, Ana Conde. Ana, are you ready for this uh, uh, this topic that I know you're very passionate about? I'm so ready. I'm literally like on the edge of my seat. <laughs> In the first season, I talked a little bit about this where I have been hospitalized as a child. Going back to when I was first diagnosed, we went through a lot of uh, outpatient treatment services for my uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, depression. But due to many ongoing challenges with my family, the community, there came a point in time where I just didn't care what anybody told me, right? And many people, including a psychiatrist, told my mother, hey, maybe maybe you need to start looking for other, more higher levels of treatment and services. So in your perspective, Anna, as somebody that has provided services, how difficult do you think it can be for anybody to even begin to have this conversation about, well, maybe this is an option? I think for the most part, it, it tends to happen where people don't necessarily have the opportunity to have that conversation beforehand. So in my experience with inpatient, like, you know, psychiatric hospitalizations, a lot of the of the people that I worked with, they didn't even really have time to kind of wrap their head around, I'm going to be hospitalized. And I don't know, and actually you might also know a little bit more about this than I do. I It is my understanding that inpatient hospitalizations have also changed drastically over the years. Where I did my fellowship and, and where I then stayed working inpatient, I was informed of that back in like the 90s, like early 2000s, it used to be that it was a little bit more like planned and coordinated and that people would go to be hospitalized for sometimes up to a month versus now it's a little bit more five, seven to 10 day type of thing for the average length of stay. Whether you're somebody that is knowledgeable about mental health or not, there's definitely the conversation of inpatient versus outpatient treatment and the severity, right? With different mental health challenges, like in my case, I've I've had both, right? And in my lived experience, when I was involved with more of outpatient services, I thought that I still had a little bit of control over my emotions, right? Where I was able to sit down with my provider and we were able to work out some specific tools, whereas when I went through inpatient intensive treatment, really that was after multiple attempts against my life. I really did not have my condition in control. I was not going to school. I was barely talking to my mother. So it wasn't just this easy thing of, well, the kid's just being, um, he's being controversial. I wasn't even talking with myself, right? 
do you think that it is sometimes hard for people to understand when sometimes you do need to take a higher level of decision making for the benefit of everybody involved in that family? And, you know, it's never a decision that comes easy to anybody. And, you know, you mentioned when you were kind of talking about yourself and how you had already struggled with a with a series of attempts. When it comes to that point, you are also looking at something a little bit more long term, if possible, because there's only so much that not only the provider, but the actual person can do and, and tolerate in a short period of time to kind of be able to embark on a journey, not to sound too corny, of <laughs> healing and, and wellness. And, you know, those those moments of deciding, like, you know, my child might or I may need a long-term setting where I can really kind of be physically safe in order to work on, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, So it's never an easy decision. And I think to also be able to recognize, like, I might need this, it's a very brave and vulnerable thing, for lack of a better word. We have to understand that not only is it an, an emotionally challenging decision, right? It's also a very economically challenging one. Not everybody can necessarily go through this. Even when I was a child, and we're talking about 90s, like early 2000s, it was very expensive then. It's still very expensive now. When you don't live with mental illness, like when you're not diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder, when you don't live that, when you don't understand what is happening in that mind, maybe sometimes in uh, outpatient services, I would go to my psychologist and I would feel great about the dialogue that we have, but then I go back home. And in my home, that's where the intrusive thoughts can maybe go in. That's where I start second guessing. You know, is my psychologist actually helping me or is she or he really just telling me what I want to hear? And not everybody goes through that, but that is the difference. And maybe in many ways, the benefits of inpatient services where you have that intense process where you're being taken care of basically 24-7, whether it be for a single day, whether it be for a month, you have that nurturing environment in the traditional sense because you know we can't deny the fact that historically there have been controversial things happening inside of inpatient treatments and fortunately things have evolved but going back to that history what are some of the concerning things that you've either heard or you can validate from the past we're talking you know like things have changed but what can be some of the things that people go like hey i've heard about this so that's not happening what where i did my fellowship and where i ended up working and without giving too much detail to disclose it, it's one of the first uh, 10 to 15, let's say, psychiatric hospitals that were actually created in the States. So there's like a very long history to, to that. And, you know, I think there's, yes, there's positive things. Like there was finally a place where people could go and receive mental health services that weren't necessarily called that back in the day. But the reality is, like, you also see shows like, oh, I, forget the, I forget the name, but there's a, a Netflix-produced series where psychiatric hospitals were also kind of used to hide people who were committing acts of pedophilia because it was understood that it was, you know, treatable in a different way, you know. So that might not be the, necessarily the best example, but, you know, I think there's, there's both, definitely. Um, and, you know, you see people who go in with a very distorted thought of what inpatient hospitalizations are, sometimes based on things that they've seen or read, like, you know, oh, this used to exist for people who committed, you know, very heinous acts and stuff like that. Which I think, you know, two things, it eliminates the sense of, reduces the sense of 
relatedness. Like I can relate to this person and, and, and know that I can also benefit from this. But it also kind of and, and I and I lived this a lot. People would often come in already kind of like on guard, like very defensive, feeling like we were going to keep their child against their will. So it, there's definitely like no easy answer. But I did kind of want to take the opportunity to say like I was lucky enough to kind of train and then work at a place where I had a very long history. And it's definitely evolved. But at the same time, you know, I, I feel these a lot of the stigma associated with it has also kind of carried on through the generations where a lot of it isn't totally gone. Specifying the fact that we're talking about child and adolescent, I was hospitalized to that. And I was a big fan of movies. And guess what they showed in movies, right? Whenever it was anything regarding hospitalization from a psychiatric standpoint, you're, you're talking about the straitjackets. You're talking about the yelling and all of these things. So... The moment anything was insinuated towards me, I told my mom, like, hey, th this ain't happening, right? I I'm not a crazy person. Because even though I was aware that my thoughts were out of control, I had attempted against my life, but even I had not met that point. And I think it's the big challenge when the, the, the culture and society, because it's what they see on movies and films, they assume, like, oh, that is exactly what happens. No, absolutely. And you still get a lot of, like... Oh, but I shouldn't be here. I'm not crazy. <laughs> Whatever crazy means. <laughs> and so definitely, and I, and I know we talked about this in a previous episode, media has such a power to really influence people's perception. And I know that there's been efforts, like I've seen a lot of like ads on YouTube for different children's hospitals. And, and I, for those who are listening for the first time, possibly to this episode, uh, my experience is primarily children, adolescents. That's why I talk primarily about that. But I've seen a lot of ads for like, you know, this is what we do and actually giving like an inside look at hospital facilities um, because of the misperception and the, you know, the, the negative feel and aspect that I think the media has for a very long time put on not only mental health, let alone mental health in a hospital setting. And I think what you said now is very important because let's take out the psychiatric part and just think about the whole concept of hospitalization. I don't think I don't think a lot of people love being hospitalized, period, right? As somebody that I've been hospitalized for physical challenges, I'm never like, oh my goodness, I'm so happy about that. I was the president of the PAMI Council for Puerto Rico, which is the protection and advocacy for individuals with mental illness. And even there, I had seen some horrifying things less than two decades ago of uh, people's rights being abused and all of that. So we are not here to say, hey, all hospitalization nowadays is absolutely perfect. But that's why what Anna just said is so essential, that it is our responsibility that if psychiatric hospitalization is maybe a possibility, it's our responsibility to learn about it, to actually study the place, even when... Uh, I was hospitalized in Rogers Memorial Hospital, just to be very specific, in Wisconsin in the States. My mother and I went there before I was hospitalized. We visited the facilities. We spoke to the staff. So it wasn't this whole uh, one to, uh, you know, like whether you like it or not scenario. Now, that being said, not everybody goes through that because fortunately, my anxiety and self-control was still like at a 5%. But I know situations, you know, whether it be child, adolescent, or adults, where it is a forced process, right? Because maybe they can't necessarily make those decisions. And that does have some long-term implications from the family perspective, which we can get to. What would you say is the biggest benefit, as uncomfortable as it can be, 
for psychiatric hospitalization? Safety. I think that is the one thing that comes to mind for me. Being able to provide a, a space where someone can remain physically safe while working towards, you know, healing, even if it's in a short period of time, that is the biggest thing that I feel a hospitalization can provide for someone who's struggling significantly with, with anything related to mental health. Because if you're not able to stay physically safe, everything else kind of goes a little bit out the window, you know, therapy, even medication changes. So I think, you know, you're able to get to a place physically where even if you are unable to remain physically safe for yourself, you are surrounded by people 24-7 who are trained to help you be safer and de-escalate if you're struggling significantly, as opposed to kind of having that happen in the community and then just, you know, dealing with the repercussions, whatever they may be. If you're if you're in a hospital setting, you're able to be de-escalated however long it takes and then provided with intensive support, whether it's, you know, needing an additional medication or having your therapist right there with you to kind of work through things in the moment as they're happening, as opposed to when you do outpatient and, you know, you see them once a week. And I think, you know, it also, it provides a safe environment where even the most difficult of symptoms can be treated. And it's it's good that it's happening here. I mean, it's not good that it's happening, but it's good that we're able to see it in a safe setting because then we can adjust whether it's safety planning, discharge recommendations, medication, if this person needs to go to a residential treatment, which I think is maybe one of if what you, the program that you did, I think if we put that in today's terms, it might be more of like a residential treatment facility where they usually do a month to three months. Yeah. I think, you know, safety is the the biggest thing that I, that I understand you just benefit from right off the bat. And uh, I can completely validate that because thinking about my worst moments with my mental illness, uh, we talked previously about the fact that I was physically and emotionally abused by a family member. And it got to the point that I can't even look at a picture without just becoming enraged. And the problem is that enraged would mean that I would not be afraid to push anybody around me. So I became a threat, not just to myself, but to others. So the fact that I was hospitalized during that process meant that they could actually trigger me in a way for my benefit, right? This is part of exposure response therapy where I was, I was exposed to a picture of this person. I would become incredibly anxious, but then they will be coaching me throughout that process to reduce my anxiety. I can do that at home with my mother. That would put her at risk because she had already tried that. And I think that the most the most difficult thing for a parent to do, like I'm not a, I'm not a father, right? But as somebody that support, supported a lot of caregivers, this whole process of somebody else is taking care of my child. I know that can be a very, very scary thing, especially when we're talking about mental health, when you're used to the stigma around psychiatric hospitalization. I remember my mother and me, we would have a lot of conversations with caregivers before they would hospitalize their child. And it was more of just like, who am I gonna speak to afterwards? Like they thought they were almost trading in their child, right? They're trading in one and they're gonna get another one. That sort of leads me to a, a conversation about the psychiatric hospitalization to me was never the, the conclusion to the story, right? To me, it was an essential key to my life 
So then when I was reinserted to the community, when I was living once again with my mother, that was the real challenge, right? Because that's when I had to put in practice everything I learned there with my psychiatrist, with my psychologist. Also, at the same time, they were connecting with my mother, making sure that she was also knowledgeable about that. When it comes to that part of informing the actual caregiver, mother, father, aunt, any of that, how essential do you think that is? Oh, crucial, because you said it yourself, you know, um, I couldn't have said it better. Inpatient is just typically the start of trying to make something different work, whether it's medication, a treatment modality, anything like that. And I remember when I when I would kind of have these patients who were on the unit for over two weeks, which wasn't common, but um, it did happen, you know, we were able to kind of really connect and, and, and mind you, this is true, regardless of the amount of time that you're in there, but we were able to really have the conversations about, like, let's say we have a marvelous family session and Juan is able to tell his mom, like, hey, I am really, it makes me really, really angry when you do X, Y, and C, and it just, it, it makes me want to hurt something. It's very different to have that conversation as, as brave as it is to do that in a safe hospital setting versus actually having that conversation in the middle of the day-to-day life after, you know, everyone has had a stressful day and all of a sudden you're really struggling in that moment and the parent might be occupied with something else because that's life. Um, Being able to really identify what are what can we take from this admission and how can we translate that into day-to-day life? How can we make sure that home is a safer place? How can we make sure that you're being supported at school? If you are receiving already therapeutic services, what can we do to tailor them? Because there is a little bit of like a, like a safety, I feel, that often comes with hospitalizations. And I think in a weird way, it has to do with the mindset of kind of like the media, like, you know, it's it's almost like what happens in inpatient stays in inpatient. <laughs> and it's not about necessarily, you know, not everyone feels comfortable going about and, and talking about their experience and saying that they were admitted at one point in their lives. You know, we would often get kids back um, on the unit. And then when we were kind of digging through things, one of the pieces to the puzzle was like, you know, things kind of felt fell apart at home or at school or in the community. Um, So definitely, you know, having those conversations from day one, it's something that I was trained to do and I continued to do voluntarily as a as a staff member. And, you know, I I sometimes talk to to someone who says, you know, that their child might be struggling. And if they tell me that they're on their way to the hospital, I I oftentimes also kind of encourage them like, hey, if they're going to go home from the emergency department ask, you know, how can we ask for a safety plan, basically, and how can we tailor that safety plan to be very realistic to home and school and the community? I think that one of my biggest uh, frustrations, let's call it, I've mentioned previously, even with the episodes I've recorded with you, that although my my inpatient treatment was very beneficial for me, I did go back to Puerto Rico and experience many of the things that you just mentioned, which is challenges at my school, challenges in my community, because I was reinserting myself to the community. So I say this just to let everybody know that this is a challenge. The mental health, I think we need to stop seeing it as, well, here's the problem. Here's the cure. Keep going on with your life. We have to work with this every single day. But when, when the topic of stigma regarding mental health becomes part of the conversation, that's where the implication is different. Say somebody has type 1 or type 2 diabetes, but is in a very sensitive part of their life, right? 
Nobody would bat an eye at that person saying, hey, I'm avoiding rice, I'm avoiding bread, I'm exercising, I'm making all these drastic changes in my life for the sake of my health. Maybe somebody would be sad that they're not you know, having a slice of pie or something, but nobody would see this person as less, right? Just, hey, I understand it. In the context of mental health, it is seen as, well, you're the crazy person. So it's like there's all this heavy baggage that when I did go back to Puerto Rico, as you mentioned, I had to deal with the bullying and all of that. And the thing that really benefited me with inpatient was the fact that, as you mentioned, it was a safe environment. I could yell, I could cry, I could do whatever, but I knew that my providers were right there. I knew that the day after, I didn't have to see my father, I didn't have to go to school, I didn't have to do uh, to deal with all these things that were messing me up. They're not what made me feel horrible, but they made me feel worse. There's so much that impacts, you know, when you study psychology, you learn about the environment as micro, macro, and mesosystem as, you know, all these things that together contribute to who you are as a person and how you engage with the environment around you. Within those things, you know, it's so difficult also, and I think that's where a lot of people really struggle. It's so difficult to pre-plan how you're going to react or what situation is going to necessarily trigger a negative thought or um, suicidal ideation or anything like that. Um, so as much as, yes, you can sometimes dig a little bit deeper and work towards identifying those things, it's very different to talk about it in an inpatient unit versus actually going back into the community and living those things and not having the safety of my clinician is just five minutes from from being able to meet with me. Inpatient is step one and and I and I we've said this before in other episodes too inpatient doesn't necessarily it, it's not a cure-all it's a, it's a way to stabilize provide safety and have really raw and and honest conversations as much as possible about what going home you know is going to look like or if you are unable to go home safely then these are the next steps that follow which is usually a, a residential facility when I was first hospitalized I will say, it damaged my relationship with my mother because it was at a point in time where I was not the problem. The problem was everybody else. I had convinced myself in my head that that was it. So the moment that I was hospitalized, even though, yeah, I was speaking to a psychologist, to a psychiatrist, I knew that I could feel myself feeling better, right? I even even afterwards, like I was hospitalized for three to four months. When Once like the second month kicked in, that's when my relationship took a positive turn where I began to see that wow, I can look at a picture and not feel triggered. I can actually become anxious and not have to spit excessively or blink 25 times. I realize life has this endless potential. You have to remain committed. And this is commitment from yourself, commitment to everybody else, and realizing that sometimes, and this is very unfortunate, it may not necessarily work out in in just one time. I remember when I was first hospitalized, I was once again around 10 years old. I had a roommate. He is some somebody that honestly, I think about him at least twice a week for over the past decade plus because he was somebody that had a lot of my symptoms, but it was magnified by five. He was somebody that he had to be taken away from the same room that I was in for my safety. He had to be isolated from everybody. My mother and I, and this broke my heart, we went to the same hospital. I want to say it was like three years after because we were we wanted to highlight the positive efforts of hospitalization to people from Puerto Rico. So we actually traveled with a team of clinical staff from Puerto Rico 
over to this hospital with the idea that they could see, hey, check out these other services. My mother and I go to the facilities and who's there? That same person that I was once roommates with. And my heart broke because his caregivers did not want him back. Even though he was getting better, they said, what if he gets worse again? What if that happens? And when I talk about commitment, whoever's a caregiver, you made a conscious choice to take care of that child. Especially if, if that child becomes hospitalized, you have to understand that this is a long-term process. Uh, how many parents have we seen, like forget about mental health, how many parents have we seen children with autism, with like severe diabetes, some parents just abandon them. And that to me is just so upsetting. So what would you say to that parent that is on the opposite side, that is fully committed, right? Uh, what would you say to that parent to understand that it's not exactly easy, it's not a one-stop shop, things can be very rough, but at the end of the tunnel, there's a positive light. What would you say to them? You're doing the best that you can. That's really what I would say to them. I think parents when they're committed, they put such an immense pressure on themselves. Um, and admirably so, you know, they're doing it out of the love that they have for their for their children, whether they're, you know, I've worked with everything from biological parents to adoptive parents to foster parents to aunts and grandmothers who are raising the children as their own. If you're there and if you're committed and you're attending the sessions and you're doing what you can, you're doing the best you can, and that's fine. I think it's it also sets a very realistic example to to whoever's kind of struggling like you know this is life this is what I'm going to be working with so instead of kind of running on this adrenaline of like everything has to be perfect we have to get x service blah 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 blah, blah. yes that's good but it's also okay to kind of breathe a little bit and know that you're doing your best and you as a parent might have an off day that's okay like it's exhausting to deal with quote unquote this system to feel like you're constantly on like survival mode and just trying to grasp everything that's being thrown at you. And I think, you know, we, we might talk about this in another episode, but, you know, one of the things that I've was always a, not a shock to me, but it actually was kind of like a grounding thing for me was when I would talk with parents with um, whose children were being admitted for the first time due to suicidal attempts, more so than ideation. I would talk about it, you know, as I normally would because I work with that day in and day out. Um, and I would have parents kind of break down crying and I'd be like, what did I say? And they're like, you know, they would kind of reflect back how I was talking about suicide, not directly at me, but, you know, kind of putting it into the context of their children. And I'm like, oh, wow, I forget that, you know, this is a, a, a very triggering and sensitive word and topic. So even in those moments, it's okay that you're reacting like that, you know, and I think the best thing that a parent can do is be very honest with the providers. If you're really struggling, don't make the commitment of saying, yes, okay, we can do, you know, three times a week outpatient therapy. If you work eight to five and you don't have a car and you're a single parent. Um, and that's not to say that you're not trying, but we can, you know, as part of a, of a treatment team, we will do what we always can as much as possible to help make the aftercare accessible for you and realistic. Repeating sort of what you said at the beginning, it's not your fault. Even when I was first diagnosed, even though my mother, I, I think maybe she, and, and I think maybe most caregivers maybe go to that first, right? That that self-blame, what did I do wrong? Where does, the, uh, where does this diagnosis come in? Is it, a, is, it, is it a genetic thing? Even though I don't think she uh, blamed herself a lot, the rest of my family made sure to, right? Uh, they made sure that any doubts that she may have had, they would validate those. When you figure out, and this is from 
Like I'm speaking on behalf of somebody that was hospitalized. I'm saying if you're a caregiver, please take care of yourself during this because I think far too much we focus on the person that is in the inpatient treatment and it, and it makes sense, right? Like that is what we are there for. But once that is all said and done, I come back to you. We come back to that family. It is a draining process as somebody that saw my mother have to deal with the education system, with my family, with herself, with her job, which she lost during that process, right? If you're a caregiver listening to this, even the thought that I know there's HIPAA laws, there's all of this, but as human beings, even the the insinuation that you tell your boss, hey, my child, you know, may be hospitalized because everybody knows. I feel like uh, as much as you try to hide, people get very nosy especially in a social media age. Maybe you post five times a week, but in the process that your child is hospitalized, you post no times a week. People get curious. People start asking when you're so bottled up and when you don't have that support system, my advice is to look for that. You know, that is where online support groups can be of great benefit of just listening to other caregivers go through that. My mother didn't have that. My mother didn't have that support system. She had it in Wisconsin. I remember like we met like other parents and we had like that insanely beautiful relationship. One of them owned a, a sandwich shop, which did not help with my obesity, <laughs> but on the positive side, I mean, I got some free honey ham. I, I still think about those boxes. I love honey ham. Oh, it, it is so good. It is so good. <laughs> so have some honey ham. But, but even this process that we're laughing, it's like, you need that. Yeah, absolutely. We are human beings. If we only obsess over the psychiatric hospitalization, which even just saying that is so dense, is so heavy, remember that after that, you need to nurture that relationship. And how that is nurtured is very different because all of us have different cultures, right? We come from a Puerto Rican background, so that could be making some mofongo and then talking about the experience. It's interesting you say, when I've worked with, um, I think primarily Puerto Rican families in the hospital, and I see like the grandmother's very stressed out. Like I literally, like I offer them coffee. <laughs> like they get them cafecito because it's, it's those little things that can really help in a very different. And I always, uh, they would laugh because I'd be like, it tastes horrible, but I am more than willing to get it for you. <laughs> yeah, you're willing to do it. You're willing to do it. And think about life after that inpatient, whether it's somebody that went through it, could go through it, any of that. What I loved afterwards is that I had that euphoric experience where I just felt amazing afterwards because my medication was at the right level. I was still in contact, but there was that point where I was once again engaged in direct communication with my mother. Every time we would go to a coffee shop, we would go to eat or just have a conversation or just walk around. That was the first time in my life that I felt normal people. And if you haven't had a lived experience with mental illness, trying to even feel normal, but actually feeling normal is just, if I had to choose between being a millionaire and feeling normal or feeling like I don't have to think about Am I going to live tomorrow? Is this intrusive thought going to be there? I would take that every single day of the week, people, because it is just an amazing thing. But let's not forget that this is still an ongoing conversation. You know, we could talk about this topic for many more hours. So getting this into some more specifics or, or things that we want to make sure we don't leave off, what would you say is uh, like another, another preparation tool, you know, somebody that maybe is about to engage in this process for their children, their adolescent, is there any other additional uh, advice or something they should consider as they get ready for this? 
Therapy is not easy. Seeing your child go through anything is not easy, let alone, you know, being in a in a hospital with other kids who might have more severe symptoms. I had a lot of parents kind of confide in me and say, like, you know, it's it's really hard to see him or her or they here and seeing, you know, that, you know, quote unquote, someone's doing worse. Um, so, you know, you're going to be seeing something. It's not perfect. Um, oftentimes, we also had to kind of assist in getting parents off the unit if there was a very severe crisis out of privacy and respect for the person who was going through it, but also, you know, kind of to be mindful of everybody. So be ready that it's not going to necessarily look like what you think it is. Be very vulnerable and forthcoming. Be honest. Um, I think that's a really, really difficult thing that can be for anybody, you know, but let us know. And I say us, you know, coming from the therapist, but let us know how things really are at home. Let us know what you're truly worried about. You know, I've had parents say, you know, like, I'm not worried about him going to school. I'm not worried about him, you know, going to therapy. He will do those things. I'm worried about what he'll do when I go to sleep at 2 a.m. after my eyes give out because I work. And this is, you know, I'm talking of a, of a parent of a child who who came to us with severe, severe injuries in an attempt to take his life. Be very honest about what you're worried about. I think that's a very, very important thing. And in the same note, and, and you know, Juan and I, you and I were talking about this, I think, before we started recording, not everyone's going to have the same experience. Not every patient is going to have the same experience, whether they're hospitalized once, twice, or three times or more. You know, as much as we want to say, like, all hospitalizations are positive, the, the truth of the matter is that, you know what, maybe you didn't have a great experience in a hospital setting. Maybe you go and it's not what you hoped for. And it really, you know, it's just, it didn't work out for you. That's a part of it. But don't, you know, don't let that keep you from advocating for yourself and for your child. Even if it isn't necessarily kind of what, similar to what Juan and I have talked about today, be be an advocate for your child and, and for your family and you as a parent or a caretaker. Um, I think that's really important. And, and please never leave a hospital with a sa- without a safety plan. <laughs> um, I think that's crucial. I'm... I'm one to do safety plans for everything, for school, for home, for everything. And also, like Juan said earlier, take care of yourself. Having someone in a hospital setting is very stressful for the family dynamic. You know, you're being called a couple of times a day for updates, for, you know, being called to come in for a family session. It's definitely a lot and it, and it seems like a lot. It doesn't seem it is. A lot happens in a very short period of time. So definitely be... Be very mindful of kind of your own needs and don't be afraid to communicate those to the treatment team. It may not be perfect. It might not solve it all, but it's it's intended to be a step in the right direction. The same way that we said, don't blame yourself as a caregiver for the situation that is happening. Don't also add that pressure to the, the child or adolescent that, hey, this needs to work because... It's one thing that if somebody's playing at a basketball game, right, the coach is usually like, you can do it, Anna. You're like, you're going to do it. You're gonna, you're, you can push that person. And in the sports setting, that may work. But when we're talking about our emotions, how we feel those thoughts in our head, I've seen some parents with the best intentions, like I know they don't mean any harm, but before the hospitalization, they're like, Anna, like, remember, like, this has to work. Like, we're paying a lot of money for this. There, there's the health, health insurance. It is very expensive. So make it work. The child hasn't even stepped foot inside there, and no longer are they focusing on themselves. They're focusing on, I need to make sure this is not a waste of time for my parents. Parents can also get very overwhelmed, and that translates to kind of how they interact with their with their children. I've had parents say, and I know this is coming out of worry and fear, but say like, 
well, if you get readmitted, I'm not coming back to see you. And, and I, we process these things with them. And then, you know, we, we discuss them in family therapy. But I, th- I say that because I think it's a good example of something that, you know, maybe necessarily we wouldn't ever consciously say, I would say that to my child in a moment of crisis. But if you're still at a point where you don't necessarily meet criteria for a longer term treatment, and it's hospitalization number six in the span of a year, and you work and you have two other kids at home, it can be very exhausting. Um, and, I, you know, in those moments of anger, we can say things that maybe we wouldn't say in other moments. So again, just be very mindful. And um, I've had some parents where we were able to say like, you know what, let's just kind of pause the family session for to- for tomorrow. It's not really the best. Come and visit them tonight. Just chill, play a game tomorrow. I will call you. We'll talk this through and then we'll kind of reconvene on Friday, so to speak. So just, you know, don't, again, don't be afraid to kind of advocate for yourself and how frustrated you are. It's, it's not always, this is what we're there for. This is what we're trained to do. We're not just trained to work with people who are happy. It's, it's really about being there in those very raw moments. So don't be afraid to be vulnerable, but also be receptive to kind of the support that the treatment team is able to, to give. I, I would always say that to parents, like I'm here for for Juan, but I'm here for you, um, you know, Mrs. Court as well. So don't be afraid of that. Yeah, please don't. And and like I mentioned, I can't stress enough the importance of peer support, support groups during that process, because just getting to connect with another another parent that has gone through or is going through that same situation, sometimes that's all we need. Because if you're working with the whole process that your child is in inpatient services, but then you're going to work, and then people may be asking, hey, how's Juan doing, right? There is that thought in your head of like, do I say it or do I not? When you don't have somebody to actually speak that with, that can eat you alive on the inside. So please do not be afraid to just connect with somebody else. There are so many different ways that we can do that. Um, you know, there are even like uh, online support groups, online groups, like if you only want to write because maybe sometimes we're afraid to verbally express how we're feeling, all these concerns, all these fears. Don't be afraid to exhaust every available resource, not just for your child, not for your adolescent, but for you. Because remember, as Anna said, and I can, and as somebody that lived through that, that is step one. Everything that happens after inpatient, maybe the person has to come back, maybe they don't, but that is part of the road. This is not a linear process and it's frustrating for everybody. I don't think there's anybody in the process that is happy to once again go through that. I wanted to just be able to engage with uh, the, the, the few friends that I had, just to be able to go to movie theater without having these thoughts. Despite that, I was aware that I was going through a situation that nowadays I'm thankful for that. Was it scary? Absolutely. Once I actually met with that staff, and that's why, once again, I can't stress enough, do your research. I did not have that. You know, we didn't have smartphones when I was hospitalized initially. Kind of dating yourself there. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm feeling old now by saying that. Use the benefit of social media online, especially now with the times that we are living at. You can do virtual tours. You can ask, ask 5,000 questions, people. I guarantee you that first day, of the inpatient is the heaviest day that you can probably have in your life up to that point. But knowing that you made the questions that you had in your head and you left without without that feeling of what did I avoid? Because if there's one thing that I can I can see on the other side, and I just thought of this unrelated to this, but it's, it's part of it, right? The best thing for me with inpatient uh, treatment is I had a lot of thoughts that I was afraid to speak to with my mother. Even with my psychologist, while I was in Puerto Rico, I was afraid because I had that little thought in my head of what if 
he or she, depending on the time period, uh, said that to my mother. But knowing that I was an inpatient, I felt like I could say every thought in my head. And I wasn't judged by anybody because I looked, I looked at the person next to me. I'm like, well, we are all going through something. And I say that in a, from a place of laughter because that made me feel good and that let me open up. And, I, and I've done that with, with kids too. I'll be like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say like, well, I'm afraid to say like my mom will not handle it. Well, I'm like, well, you know what? your mom gets to go. <laughs> you stay here. So let's try it. I mean, it, it, you know, it hasn't been working for you the way it's been going. Mom gets to, you know, mom has to leave at the end of the day, you get to stay here and we will talk it through. So there's a lot of opportunity for for growth and healing in that setting. Everybody, as I mentioned, we can keep this conversation going as you can clearly tell. So if there's uh, anything that you would like us to go back to or, or elaborate on, uh, don't be afraid to reach us. Uh, that is Happy to Fail on Facebook. You can also uh, find us on all available podcast apps, including Stitcher and Spotify, also Happy to Fail. You can email me directly to Juan, J-U-A-N, at happytofail.com. That way, uh, maybe we can carry the conversation. We just want to be able to create these conversations and and just community efforts, we are actually going to be recording another episode in the near future about a conversation about suicide. The reason that I say a conversation is that even just bringing the word up brings in fear, brings in concern. It gets heads turning. So uh, Anna and I are just going to have that natural conversation about it, how uncomfortable it is, but also how healing and necessary it is to have that conversation. So uh, can, can you give us a preview of just how essential it is that the topic of suicide is talked about within our community? We can't not talk about suicide and prevent and, and expect, I'm sorry, for numbers to just magically drop or for suicide to magically go away. It's real. It happens. It's really difficult to talk about, but avoiding it isn't helping us either. So I really am really looking forward to that episode. I don't think you could have said that any better because in order for all of us as a community to do something about this, we must first be willing to talk about it in a real, genuine conversation between everybody. So from a production standpoint, I do want to remind everybody that for the remainder of this season, which is going to be packed with 15 episodes, this has been episode number eight. The podcast will be following a weekly format. So one Monday, you're going to be getting an episode. The next Monday will be a break. And then the following Monday, we'll be back again with Happy to Fail. If you listen to an episode and you want to share it with somebody, you have that time to be able to have them listen to the episode, engage in a conversation, and maybe reach out once again to Juan at happytofail.com. So thank you for listening and take care, everybody.